is Lisa DeLay, and you are listening to the Spark My Muse podcast. Welcome, everyone, to the Spark My Muse podcast. Today, I have a returning guest who I've had the fortunate experience of having on two other times, Carl McColeman. And I are going to be having a chat about unteachable lessons, why wisdom can't be taught and why that's okay. His book is on a lot of things that he talks about in his life that almost like there's a memoir type of feel about this book. But one of the pages, page 29, I think sums it up. These lessons taught to us in silence. The curriculum is life. The syllabus is nothing more than our willingness to be present. For me, that kind of encapsulates what a lot of this book is about and what a lot of our lives are about, too. We don't actually learn in a kind of classroom setting. We learn as we live. So thank you so much, Carl, for being on my show today. It's always a delight, Lisa. Glad to be here. If you aren't familiar with Carl, he is also the author of Befriending Silence, the big book of Christian mysticism, Christian mystics, 108 seers, saints, and sages, answering the contemplative call. And he lives near Georgia and is a member of the lay Cistercians of Our Lady of the Holy Spirit, a contemplative community under the spiritual guidance of Trappist monks. And um, one of the... um, the special things about this book is that you talk a lot about your stepdaughter and the unique relationship you had. Sometimes it was, it was bumpy and other times it was very tender and she passed away early because of health problems. But one of the funniest parts I thought in the book was when you go to say that you're sorry to her and she says, we've already covered that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And maybe you can explain a little bit, uh, about your relationship, and those are some of those lessons too. That there's no there's no textbook for being a parent and um, loving a child that has difficulties and disabilities. But uh, some of those lessons are really hard fought because they really challenge our own um, frailties or weaknesses or hard edges. Uh, having a child myself with his own challenges and disabilities and his stubbornness, um, I know that. Uh, I've been taught in many ways too. Sure. The, um, you know, the, there's a, a, a saying that I think a lot of parents have muttered, you know, why didn't they come with an instruction manual? And, and, and I, I imagine, you know, that is, is very true whether a child, uh, you know, has, has chronic health problems or has a, a disability or a different ability or, you know, whatever the circumstance might be. Uh, Rhiannon was my only child uh, and she was not my, as I think you already alluded to, not my biological child. I came into her life when she was five years old and, um, you know, met her mother and her mother and I, you know, were immediately very attracted to one another and very quickly kind of moved from a friendship relationship into a dating relationship. And then of course, a little over a year later, we got married and, um, you know, and it's interesting, Fran was the first woman I ever dated who had children. Uh, so it's just, you know, this was my initiation into, you know, to kind of being an uncle at first and then being a dad, a stepdad, you know, as we moved into, into creating a family. And, you know, and one of the things I, I talk about in the book is that I was, you know, kind of a rather narcissistic young 
adult with, you know, kind of a bachelor kind of a guy. And, um, and, you know, so falling in love with a beautiful woman was kind of easy, you know, and learning to be a dad was a little bit more challenging for me. And then learning to be a dad of a, of a child with really quite complicated medical history and, and incredible needs, just, just to, you know, for people who haven't read the book yet, Rhiannon was born with polycystic kidney disease. It's the same disease that Irma Bombeck died from. But, and like many diseases, it, it has variations. There's like type, type one, you know, like diabetes, type one and type two. And I, I can't tell you, you know, which type Rhiannon had, but, but Irma Bombeck had the less, you know, the less bad type and Rhiannon had the more dangerous type. And, and indeed it, it ran through her family on her biological father's side. And she had a cousin who died when he was 18 and, um, you know, I think there are other members of the family that have had to be on dialysis and Rhiannon herself only lived age 29. So, so the kidney disease immediately, you know, presented just incredible issues, issues in terms of care. She was developmentally delayed. She was born with some serious health issues because her kidneys were too big, which means other organs in her body didn't have the time, the, the space to develop properly. So all of that was going on. And then apparently one of the side effects of this particular type of PKD is that uh, a person can be more susceptible to um, to brain hemorrhages, and indeed, she was three years old. She had a stroke, and uh, and and her her mother found her having seizures in the bed. The seizures continued for twelve hours, and then they they had to medically induce a coma just to get the seizures to stop. And, and it ended up being in this medically induced coma for almost a week. And when she finally came out of it, it was like the hard drive had been wiped clean. She had, she had to let, she was, she was a little over three years old when this happened. She had to learn how to speak from scratch. You know, it's like, it just, just, you know, it was all these incredible issues. And then she was left hemiplegic. You know, she, she no longer had the use of her right, the right side of her body. And of course she was right-handed, right dominant. So, so that was an incredible loss. She never walked. Um, you know, she was in a wheelchair for the rest of her life. That was when she was three and she died, you know, almost to the day. It was the same month. She had the stroke August of 88. She died in August of 2014, you know. So, um, you know, so 26 years that she was confined to a wheelchair. I came into Fran and Rhiannon's life in 92. We got married in 93. So, um, you know, so she, she, yeah, just a few weeks after Fran and I met, she turned, uh, seven, I guess, six or seven years old. And then, um, uh, I'm trying to get the math right. Yeah. So she was six when I met her, she turned seven, um, shortly thereafter she was 29 when she passed away. So I was in her life a little over 22 years. Um, she taught me how to love, you know, Fran with Fran, you know, it was romance. It was Eros, you know, the, the, the joyful love of a husband and a wife. Uh, that kind of comes easy to me. <laughs> I can, I can, I can be a romancer, you know, I, I love that. But, 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 but Rihanna taught me about, she taught me about sacrifice and she taught me about, about, you know, commitment and stability and, you know, kindness, you know, forgiveness, uh, you know, dealing, dealing with our own shadow. I mean, so much that I learned from her. And again, you know, none of that, I could have ever gotten out of a book. I could have read books on, you know, being a good dad or on, on learning to love self-sacrificially, blah, 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 blah. None of that would have, would have been a candle compared to, to the challenge of, of being in this relationship. And I, I try to be honest in the book that, you know, at first I, I, I bore a lot of 
bitterness and resentment. You know, this, this child was kind of like a, like, like a drag on, you know, on, cause I, I, you know, I mean, when Fran and I met, I was a deadhead, you know, I was traveling around the country, you know, chasing after Jerry Garcia, you know, and, and here, here is this, this anchor, you know, and, and Fran said, look, I need a man who's going to be there you know, who's going to be responsible and who's going to be present, you know? And so, you know, so there was, there was quite a lot of learning that I had to do. And, and fortunately I, 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 I talk in the book about the day I met Rhiannon and how she charmed me. So, so there was, there was, there was always kind of this, this, this sense of being charmed by her. She was, she was very, you know, she was physically very beautiful and she was, she had bucket loads of personality. You know, we, we had lots of fun together and, you know, and so this is another thing I had to learn was that love can be messy, you know, that, that I can, I can resent the fact that it was hard taking care of her, that that's, that's okay. It's, it's good not to let that define the relationship. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, but, but to understand that those feelings were normal feelings, anybody who's ever been in long-term care are going to, you know, are going to run into feelings like that. And, you know, and of course, and I talk about this in the book, Fran and I were, you know, in therapy for, and we're really the three of us because Rhiannon participated in well. We're in family therapy for, for a number of years. And it's fascinating the therapist that we worked with died in on Christmas day last year. She had ALS and we were able to see her about a month or six weeks before she died. And I was able to give her a copy of this book. And I said, you know, you were mentioned in this book and this book is about how Rhiannon taught me how to love. And I want to thank you because you coached me through that. It was such a wonderful moment to be able to, to give back, you know, to somebody who had been such a, such a, so, so that's, that's the story. Um, it's, um, you know, and of course I don't really go into, you know, what life was like after Rhiannon passed away, but of course Fran and I went through about, well, about six months of just total shock, maybe another year, year and a half of, you know, just incredible grief, you know, and, um, you know, it'll, it's, it's been five and a half years now and, um, you know, we still miss her, you know, but, but we've also, you know, it's, it's, you know, and I know it's glib, but for us, it worked, you know, the, what would she have wanted? She would have wanted us to live our best lives, you know? And so we kind of let that be our guiding star. And, you know, so we're, we're, we, we say we're radical empty nesters, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you know? Oh, my kids went off to college. My kid went off to heaven, you know? <laughs> so, yeah. But, but that's, oh. you, know, you know, that's been, you know, a, a wonderful thing. And, and so I carry her in my heart, you know, and, and the fact that I, you know, I, I, you know, and I'm, I'm still not perfect as, as a, you know, as a loving husband or, you know, person, but, but, you know, the fact that, that I think to the extent that I am a person that's capable of love, I owe so much to that little girl, you know, and her teachable lessons. So, Yeah. And I, I like that you, um, this is the hard part. Uh, and I'm sure every parent can, can relate to this somewhat. Uh, sometimes we feel guilty about having bad feelings about caretaking, even though those are actual real feelings, like, um, because it can be very hard and we think, oh, well, I'm, a, I'm supposed to be loving, so I can't feel resentful towards my child sometimes because it's so hard. When you already feel that way, so you can't deny that you feel that. You just have to take all of it. Like, I feel very joyful sometimes. I feel very upset sometimes. I feel resentful sometimes. I feel all of it. And I think that's been 
that's been personal. I saw myself in your writing that, boy, this stinks sometimes. This, you know, this stinks that I have to tell my 20-year-old after three days to take a shower. He should know and he should do it. And I shouldn't have to do this. And I resent that, I, you know, that sort of thing. And then I think, but also he's such a neat kid and I love being his mom. And, you know, it's, it's both and, right? Yeah. Um, and, and that if I stuffed all those feelings that are difficult, it wouldn't help either one of us out. And I, I wouldn't learn that uh, for myself, I wouldn't learn that I'm a whole person with the complex and conflicting feelings. Yeah. 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 You know, it's interesting. Um, and I don't know if, if you announce this, to your, you know, to your listeners or put it on your website, but I'm just going to go ahead and say it. You know, we're recording this on March 31st, 2020, and it's in the midst of the pandemic, you know, and one of the issues about the COVID pandemic is that people are experiencing kind of an enforced slowdown. Well, Rhiannon was my original enforced slowdown, you know, and then I'll give you an example. You know, okay, so she was in a wheelchair. She had, you know, didn't have the use of her right uh, arm or leg. So she was very limited in terms of what she could do. We always, to the day she died, we always had to support her to transfer from her bed to the wheelchair or from the wheelchair to the toilet and back and so forth. So, you know, required an incredible amount of care and even moving in and out of the van, you know, we had a van with a ramp, you know, that she could drive up into and she could drive into it. Um, you know, the, and in fact, the, the last van we had was really great because we had a locking mechanism. She could drive in and lock lock in. But if for whatever reason she was in her manual wheelchair as opposed to her power wheelchair, we always had to we you know we would have to wheel her in too because it was kind of hard for her to wheel up the ramp by herself. So we would wheel her in, and then we had to get down on our hands and knees and tie all four wheels down with tie downs in order to keep her safe. You know. And so, and, and the reality is, let's say we're traveling and Rhiannon announces, I need to use the, you know, bathroom, you know, and I mean, if I'm traveling alone, I pull into a rest area, I run in, do what I need to do. I run back out the whole thing, even stopping to buy a Coke, the whole thing takes five right. minutes. Wow. With Rhiannon, it's usually, it was usually 30 to 45 minutes because you had you had to pull in, you had to undo the tie downs, open the van, get her out, go up. Fran would take her into the bathroom. Sometimes if there was a family bathroom, I would take her into the family bathroom. But, you know, you, uh, because of gender, it unfairly fell on Fran's shoulders. Then, of course, Fran would have to transfer on and off the toilet there and do all that kind of stuff. Get, you know, help her with her washing her hands, the whole nine yards, and then back, and then the whole thing all over again with the tie downs. So... So one of the things we learned was that even traveling, even you know, just driving up to North Carolina for a weekend getaway, we had to always build in extra time, you know, because just that was that was life. Stopping to grab, you know, a bite to eat. We we became that family who always eats in the car because it just was so much easier to drive somewhere and one of us run in and order carry out, you know, and then bring it back, and then Fran and I would take turns driving. You know, and um, and of course, having to help Rhiannon with her food, because, again, she didn't have use of she only had use of her left hand. Everybody's right handed. Imagine if you only had use of your non-dominant hand. That was Rhiannon's life. So so I, I learned over years 
how to how to move slowly yeah, through life. Exactly. You know, and this is something I don't even talk about this in the book, but this is something where I look at it now and I think Rhiannon was a tremendous contemplative teacher for me. Mm. Mm-hmm. Because contemplation, I mean, everyone thinks contemplation is about centering prayer twenty minutes twice a day. And that's important. I'm all for centering prayer. I'm all for walking the labyrinth and all these kinds of practices. But as my first teacher told me, uh, you know, 30 some years ago, Isabella Bates uh, in Washington, D.C. at the Shalane Institute, you know, she used to say contemplation, uh, our sitting is practice for a way of being. Mm. So ultimately, contemplation is about a way we live, a way we move through life. And so, you know, learning to just slow down a little bit is a contemplative practice and something that we can do 24-7 or at least through all of our waking hours, you know. And, uh, you know, just allowing yourself some extra time so that you're not rushing. So that, you know, it's it's interesting. Like, I do spiritual direction one day a week. And, of course, nowadays I'm doing it all on Skype. Thank you, yeah. COVID-19. But, but, you know, before the pandemic, one day a week, I would drive to the Jesuit Retreat Center, which is on the other side of Atlanta from where I live. And of course, you know, the Atlanta perimeter, it's rush hour all day long. You know? <laughs> right, so, right. So, so no matter what time I would go, I would have to, you know, allow 45 minutes to an hour. Well, I got into the habit of always leaving 90 minutes early. And then getting there, you know, and if traffic was really, really bad, I would still, I wouldn't be late for my appointment. And normally I would get there, you know, half an hour, 40 minutes before the appointment. And then I could go and sit in the chapel yeah. and be silent, yeah. you know? And so it just, it, it just became so much. And what that meant was that I had no stress on the highway. I knew I was going to be on the highway 45 minutes to an hour. I understood that. I would listen to music that I enjoy or listen to an audiobook or whatever. It just it was not wasted time. It was just this is my life. Mm. At this moment I'm sitting on I two eighty five with hundreds and hundreds of other people, you know, and, and I don't have to be worked up over it. Mm. Yeah, just making an allowance for it already and not having to be stressed about it at all. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's so it's so swimming upstream compared to or maybe not swimming at all, but it's it's like you're getting, there's a very hard downstream in American society of like, aren't you being productive? Aren't you doing this? What, what's going on? If you're just walking slowly, you know, in the traffic of American culture, you kind of feel like you're going to get run over. And it's because it, it's so countercultural. At the yeah. same time, it's so life-giving and centering that, that it makes a huge difference. And I think you're right about those years of force slowing down, teach you like nothing else can. I wanted to turn to to uh, page 54, where you talk about Evelyn Underhill's influence on you, that, that it sounds cliche to say she was a huge influence, but that actually she was, it was a enormous uh, impact on your life. And maybe you can talk a little bit about why that was. It's funny that you would bring up Evelyn Underhill, because just yesterday, uh, my the podcast I co-host, uh, Encountering Silence, we recorded a um, an interview with Christine Walters Paintner, the you know the uh, Abbess of the Arts person, wonderful writer, wonderful wonderful person, and we g- got on a, a tangent about Evelyn Underhill, and before you know, right there in the middle of the interview, it wasn't even my interview. I'm reading Evelyn Underhill, <laughs> so we'll see if if Kevin keeps keeps it in the final interview or not. But yes, I love Evelyn Underhill, and in, in, in fact, when I am um, when when people ask me who are the most influential writers 
for me, I always say Merton and Underhill, you know, mm. just far and away. Merton and Underhill are the two most important ones. And, um, you know, and so, yeah, you know, I've said, I know it's a cliche. This book changed my life. <laughs> Evelyn Underhill's mysticism fits the cliche for me that, you know, that I can look at, at my spiritual trajectory uh, let alone kind of my professional trajectory. And there's before Evelyn Underhill and after Evelyn Underhill. And, um, and the, you know, for the, as for professionally before Evelyn Underhill, my ambition, I wanted to write since I was in the eighth grade. So writing has been very much, you know, from the first time I thought about, you know, seriously thought about what do I want to be when I grow up? I talked in the book about when I was a kid, I wanted to paint houses because I thought that was a safe job. You know, especially <laughs> in the 1960s, you know, the job opportunities presented to four-year-olds are you can be a police officer, you can be a fireman, you can be a soldier. And I'm like, are you nuts? All of those jobs have, you know, a high mortality rate. You know? <laughs> so, so what can you do? I'll go paint houses. That's safe, you know. And then finally, my parents were like, why do you want to go into the home improvement? industry this doesn't make any sense but, and then you, anyway. you had forgotten about ladders and heights and <laughs> yeah that's what my brother said he said you can fall off the ladder and i'm like oh no you know yeah you know so when i seriously started thinking about what do i want to be when i grow up you know about the seventh or eighth grade it was like i knew i had a teacher who was very supportive of me and said i wrote beautifully and boom that was it but i always thought i would write fiction and and i think evelyn underhill you know, and then a few other authors along the way, you know, really, in, you know, brought home this idea that I could I could write more confessionally, you know, and more out of, you know, out of my faith. And so, so, you know, so she she influenced me professionally. But the thing is, I talk in the book about how when I was 16, I had this incredible moment of encounter with the, the sacred mystery, God, the spirit, you know, whatever, you know, the, the language all fails. But this you know, this, this moment, you know, and like I can look at my life before that moment and after that moment as well, you know, kind of the significant turning point. But it was about, um, well, over two years later, then I have this kind of dream about the world coming to an end. And my, um, you know, it was the summer after I graduated from high school. So they're in a very real way. My world was coming to an end. I was about to move to college and leave home and that kind of stuff. But, um, you know, so I, I took the dream to a friend who a little bit older than me, and he heard the dream. We talked a little bit. He knew a little bit of my story, knew that, you know, spirituality was very important to me. So he said, there's a book you need to read. And he gives it to me. And it's Mysticism by Evelyn Underhill, his British author, lay woman, a member of the uh, Church of England, you know, kind of the equivalent of the Episcopal Church here in North America. And um, this book is basically talking about the living tradition of men and women, primarily in Christianity, although she does draw from some other traditions. She talks a little bit about Rumi and some of the you know, folks out of other traditions, but primarily out of the Christian tradition, who generation after generation after generation, their lives have been profoundly shaped by the presence of God. You know, in different language, people talk about divine union, union with God, intimacy with God, uh, you know, being, being, you know, purified, illuminated, and united. I mean, there's all sorts of language that, that shows up because, again, this is profoundly ineffable. Nobody can put any of this in the language. So we're all, you know, we're like the blind people with the elephant, you know, where we <laughs> all have a different piece of it and then saying, this is what it is, you know. So, but, but you know, growing, I grew up in the, the Lutheran Church, the, the, what is now the uh, Evangelical Lutheran Church of America, 
back then it had a different name. But in Lutheranism in mid 20th century America, you know, the Sunday school kind of the, the, the pedagogical approach was we, we taught you Old Testament, we taught you New Testament, and we taught you about Luther. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> so it was this 1400 year gap. You know, where it's like it's like the map and it says, here be dragons. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Nobody ever talked about, you know, the St. Bernard or St. Francis of Assisi or Julian of Norwich or Meister Eckhart or, you know, any of those people, which is fascinating because even Luther himself loved. There was a, an anonymous German uh, a, a mystical document called the Theologia Germanica, the German theology. Luther loved that. He thought it was a profoundly important text. So, you know, and, and this is something I have since learned is that the original Protestant reformers, most of them were actually very uh, affirming of the great mystics. They, they, they were angry at the institutional church. But they were affirming of the of the great mystics, and it was later generations that then said, "No, no, no, the, those guys are Catholics. We don't read them." <laughs> great. <laughs> so, you know, after the break, had been more kind of kind of finalized. So, so it drew the curtain back on this long history of of Christian spiritual writing, Christian spiritual uh, thinking, and um, you know, and as somebody who had had my own kind of profoundly um, meaningful encounter with sacred mystery and didn't have a language for it. And God bless my little suburban Virginia Lutheran church. Nobody in that church had a language for it either. Mm. And, 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 and Underhill gave me a language and gave me a map. And it has just, it has shaped who I am ever since. And so my book, the big book of Christian mysticism was written very much kind of as a thank you to Evelyn Underhill. Uh, yeah, everybody loves Anne Lamont. You know, I heard a, a talk on public radio where Anne Lamont was talking about, you know, how to become a writer. And one of the things she said to her audience was, write the book you wish you could have read. Oh, yeah. And, right. And, and that that was when I got the inspiration for the big book of Christian mysticism. And I had been thinking I wanted to write about Christian mysticism for a while. You know, so I, I, I actually had already been working on a proposal. But when I got that, when I heard Anne Lamont say that thing, and, and my immediate response was, I would like to read Evelyn Underhill's mysticism only as it would be written for today. Mm, yeah. And that's, that was that was the mission statement for what became my big book of Christian mysticism. Yeah, so, and that's yeah. on that's on my shelf. That's such a good go to book uh, for yeah. all kinds of. Yeah, if that's that should be on everybody's bookshelf, in my opinion, because <laughs> there's just so well, much I, in there. Yeah, that's a little plug for you. <laughs> I may quote you on my website. There you go. Yeah, you you, you go right ahead. <laughs> One of the things I I love. Um, is how you talk about silence. No, no big shock there. But um, how you talk about silence on page 59, you said that you had a discovery and you began to discover that silence is shy, um, that you noticed, too, that even searching for God was actually a departure from silence. And uh, there's a couple other quotes here, and I'll, I'll just put them together and then you could say what you want about this portion of the book, but um, I think this is from this is from someone else. It silences the paper on which the ink of human consciousness is printed on. That is a like a juicy bit I could meditate on for <laughs> for a while. One more that I wanted to point out: um, silence is a doorway to the presence of God more than anything else within us. You write. 
I actually got some um, my Patreon donors. I, 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 you, I think you are a Patreon person too. You know, so mm-hmm. people support my work through Patreon, and for everyone who supports at the twenty dollar or high, you know, it's like PBS. You know, at the twenty dollar a month level, <laughs> you you know, get a tote bag, <laughs> get a mug, and the mug. That last quote you gave was the quote I put on the mug. So yeah, you know, yeah. And a lot, a lot of people have responded to that particular quote. And, and I mean, you know, because you write, you know, you, you write and then you go back and you read. It's like, how did I come up with that? <laughs> it just, just shows there's, there's, there's always something happening, you know, creative level that's deeper and bigger than we are, you know. So, well, let's go back to the shy soul. That is, I, I have to give props to Parker Palmer. It's really Parker Palmer who, who first kind of articulated that way of understanding you know, silence is shy. Well, he talks about the soul being shy. And I'm like, well, you know, <laughs> it's it's kind of like, you know, at the dance that the shy boy and the shy girl are looking at each other and which one's going to make the first move. <laughs> <laughs> so and they both obviously like one another and they've caught each other's eye. But they but they, you know, so so that, there's kind of this this intimacy, I think, that we can have between that deepest part of ourselves and the the vast soundlessness in which we find the face of God. And, um, and of course, the grace of it is we don't have to make the first move. You know, the, the silence is simply there. You know, and this is something that I learned after years and years and years of, you know, uh, centering prayer practice, uh, you know, meditative practice, was this idea that, you know, silence is not something we achieve, it's something we receive. That it's simply given to us that you find it in between every heartbeat and in between every thought. It's always there. And the reality is, is that to be human is to be creatures of sound. I mean, obviously, as we speak, but think about your tummy gurgling, again, the, the, you know, the percussion of your heartbeat, the, you know, the, 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 the drone of even your neurons firing. And, um, I wrote, I, I don't know, I don't think it's in the book. I think it's something I wrote on my blog once that sometimes when I sit and I really can deeply enter into silence, I will hear this hum, you know, and I thought, you know, is that my neurons firing? But then I finally figured out, you know, I went to too many Grateful Dead concerts when I was a kid. It's probably just <laughs> tinnitus. Low, low level tinnitus. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I have tinnitus too. And it, it's it, at times driven me absolutely crazy. And I think there's some medication that makes it worse. But I've tried to think of it like that. I've tried to think of it as not, not so much like the sound of silence, but the kind of like, this is this is what being powered on is, you know. Um, this is this is life, you know. Think of it as a, as a positive sound instead of like this is the sound that's going to put me in an asylum. <laughs> well, and I think that you know the reality is is that absolute silence, like you know the silence in outer space. I can't remember. I can't remember which movie. I think it was Alien. The tag was in space. No one can hear you scream. You know, <laughs> the alien is coming after you, you know, and unless you're Sigourney Weaver with a big gun, you know, you're in trouble. But, but the, um, yeah, but this, this, you know, so absolute silence is like absolute zero. You know, we really, that's really not a place of life. Um, so, so it's good that, you know, and when, when I teach center in prayer, I tell people, you know, if you have a distracted mind, that is simply evidence that you're alive. 
really work to be gentle with that and to be accepting of that, that it's not about, oh, you know, and, and, and it's funny because critics of Centering Prayer say, you know, it's wrong to empty your mind. And I always laugh because I'm like, as if we could. <laughs> That's exactly what I said to someone recently. He said, you're advocating to empty your mind. I said, have you tried it? <laughs> like, like, it's a lot harder than you think. What is what is fascinating, you know, and and yeah, yeah, no, but so yeah, the critics of centering prayer, uh, who usually come from either a very ultra conservative Catholic or an ultra conservative evangelical place, they um, they always say, you know, if you empty your mind, you make yourself vulnerable to demonic attack. That's kind of the the shtick, and that's that's bad theology because if you look back at the at particularly the early contemplative teachers, Evagrius and Cassian, the Desert Mothers and Fathers, those kinds of people, what they always say is that temptation comes through our thoughts. It does not come through silence. It comes through our thoughts. We have thoughts that are avaricious or thoughts that are lustful or thoughts that are violent or angry or abusive, you know, or whatever the case may be. And then it's acting on those thoughts that then move us into, into, into what traditionally we call sin. This is why in, in, you know, in the prayer of confession, we, we pray that we have sinned by thought, by word, by deed, Hmm. you know, so you don't sin by silence. Silence is actually a very, very safe place to be spiritually. Especially if you're God's child. I mean, it's it's like it's kind of like acting like uh, the demonic forces are equal with God or something because God is the real real thing, right? And, mm-hmm. and I think about James talks about getting dragged away by your evil desires. You know, in, in the book of James, it's, it doesn't say dragged away by your empty mind. You know, like, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. You know, so yeah. so so what silence? Is, so so there's always a dynamic relationship between silence and sound in the human body. So that's the first thing I want to say. And the second thing is, is that, you know, just this idea that, you know, and this crops up again and again in the tradition, really beginning with the Hebrew scriptures. But this idea that, that silence is an icon of God. Silence is, is the way we touch the face of God. Um, you know, in the Psalms, you have this, this wonderful verse that often gets badly mistranslated, the first verse of Psalm 65. Eugene Peterson gets it right in the message translation. Silence is praise. Silence is actually a way of praising God. We praise God with our songs. Yeah, Habakkuk or Habakkuk, I can never pronounce it right, says, you know, let, let that the, the divine, the God is in, in the holy temple, let all the earth be silent before him. And I love to read that through through the New Testament lens with, you know, with love to all my Jewish brothers and sisters. But as a Christian, I read it through a New Testament lens and God is in his holy temple. That's the, the Holy Spirit present in our hearts. You know, so God is present in our hearts, and so we respond with silence. So you have, you know, ha- you had this biblical tradition, and then again, the contemplative tradition, the tradition that Evelyn Underhill introduced me to, it just shows up again and again and again. Meister Eckhart, the great German Dominican mystic and theologian, said, you know, if this were a just world, he would be a doctor of the church. But unfortunately, he fell afoul of church politics in the Middle Ages. But he said, you know, nothing resembles God more than silence. 
nothing resembles God more than silence. So, you know, so, so we, we, and, and then what Thomas Keating, to bring it to our own, own age, Thomas Keating, who only left us a few years ago, who said, you know, God's first language is silence and everything else is a poor translation. And somebody recently, I can't remember who, one of, one of the readers of my blog, somebody said, you know, he was quoting Rumi there, who, you know, it's, it, it was, it was a, it, in his book, it's a transcript of a, you know, a Q&A he was having with students, so it doesn't get cited. So I can't give you the Rumi source. But again, the mystics have been stealing from one another gleefully for <laughs> years, so, so there's no, you know. There's this wonderful line in the cloud, and this is a digression, but I never met a digression I don't like. There's this, wonder, there's this wonderful line in the cloud of unknowing, or the cloud of, un, the author of the cloud of unknowing, who's anonymous, we don't know the person's name, probably a Carthusian monk, but he says, um, he says, there is this tendency among spiritual writers to show off how well educated they are by constantly telling you who they are quoting. He said, I think that is a sign of pride, so I will not do it. <laughs> and I thought, boy, give, give that to your, to your dissertation advisor. <laughs> yeah, they're not going to appreciate that. <laughs> where, where are your citations? Oh, that's just a sign of pride. <laughs> you know, obviously, a different, a different understanding of, of, of copyright than we have today, but um, you know, or at, you know, at the ethics of attribution. But it, but it, so, so you know, so the mystics have been saying over and over again that silence is God's first language. That um, I think Rami Shapiro he just updated his website, but but his previous website, if you go to Internet Archives and look at, at his website from a year ago, he had this wonderful quote on there where he said, you know, every religious tradition is like a language, and I want to be multilingual. But in the end, we have to remember that God's language, or the language of the soul, I think is how he put it, the language of the soul is silence. So, you know, is, you know, so... Um, it was something that Krista Tippett said that it really mirrors kind of what you're saying. And she said that the Christianity is my mother tongue. And even though you can learn other languages, in a way, your mother tongue will be the one that you, you start with first or the one you might understand best contextually. But you can be bilingual, trilingual, and really appreciate other languages and, and even like sort of other cultures or flavorings. And I, I really appreciate that that way of thinking. It's not like, no, only speak one language. That's terrible if you speak other languages. I like the idea that um, learn as many as you can and and ultimately... God knows every language and no language. You know, it's it's kind of a beautiful way to see it. I think. We, you know, there's two sides to this because I, I totally agree with you. And and the, you know, and the, and the Christians who are afraid of other religious traditions, that's their fear speaking. And and I think we should be compassionate towards people like that, although they can be annoying sometimes. I I, I recently did a did this is the story with a happy ending. I recently did a parish mission. At a, at a Catholic church in another diocese than my own. And somebody got to my website, saw where I had written about the Yoga Sutras, and, and they wrote a letter to the bishop saying that this person shouldn't come and speak at the diocese because he promotes yoga. And, and to the bishop's credit, even though the bishop had no idea who he was, he talked to the pastor who had hired me. I guess he visited my website too. And he got on the phone with this woman and he said, I have no problem with this man coming to my diocese. So, so it, it had a happy, happy ending. But, but this kind, this kind of thing goes on, where you know, where Christians who 
out of their own fidelity and their own what 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 feels right to them. I don't want to I don't want to attack their conscience as an act of conscience. They say my Christianity does need to be monolingual. I only want to approach God speaking the language of Christianity. But then where it gets into trouble is when they want to police everybody else. Because I think the reality is, is that we live in an age, I mean, again, look at Merton, look at Bede Griffiths, uh, look at Tilden Edwards, uh, Sarah Grant, uh, Cynthia Bergeau, you know, so many of, of our most creative spiritual teachers of our time are, you know, they speak the mother tongue of Christianity, but they are multilingual and they're drawing from other sources. And, and so that, that's really, really important. But the other side of it, and this is something I had to learn because I studied Buddhism for a while, you know, and, and, and every day, every day, you know, the bishops did something that made me angry, which, you know, fairly frequently, but I'm done with the Catholic church. I'm going to go be a, be a Buddhist. But what I came to realize, as much as I love the Dharma, and I will always want to, you know, I, I say Christians studying Buddhism today are like Christians studying Aristotle, you know, 800 years ago. It's, it's, it is such a rich gift that God has given us from outside of our tradition. But, um, but I realized I cannot be a Buddhist the way the Dalai Lama is a Buddhist. I cannot be a Buddhist the way Thich Nhat Hanh is a Buddhist, you know, and, 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 and that's not to take anything away from Western Buddhists like Pema Chodron, for example, you know, uh, I, I, I admire them and they're, they're being true to their path and that's great. But I realize that I will always speak Buddhism as a second language, even if I became fluent in it. It will always be my second language, you know, and, and that for me made me realize that, okay, I'm, you know, Christianity is in my DNA. It's kind of baked in. And, um, you know, and so for better or for worse, this is where I am to work out my relationship with God and my relationship with being, you know, a loving presence among other human beings. And so, um, you know, so when I, now when I get angry at the church, it's kind of like having a fight with my wife, you know, okay, we 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 have this fight. We got to work through. This. Yeah, yeah. You sometimes have to agree to disagree, and yeah, no, it, it might be painful for a while, you know. And and you know, I will. I mean, you know, it's just. But but I'm committed to the relationship. You know, I'm in it for the, you know, and so, and and just like a healthy marriage, is enhanced when both partners in the marriage have meaningful, deep friendships outside the marriage, my relationship with Christianity is deepened by my, you know, my study primarily of Buddhism. But in the book, I also talk about neo-paganism, how that has had a very important kind of, was an important chapter in my journey, you know, and, and I mean, even, even Islam, Kabbalah, Sufism, you know, there's so much out there that we can learn from, you know, I think as people who are devoted to our own spiritual nurture and also being good neighbors on the, in this global village we find ourselves in, it only behooves us to learn. So, but of course we'll never, you, you can't even master, and this is what I think the, the monolinguists are saying, you can't even master your own language in a lifetime. Why, why get distracted by everything else? It's like, okay, so each one of us has one life. We got to do the best we can. With God, well, I, that's probably, that's probably true for languages and, and for, you know, religious inquiry and, and spiritual inquiry. I, I would agree with that, and it, but it doesn't mean that you can't give it a, you know, s- explore different things. I, I think that, um, 
what's what's interesting i i've noticed that sometimes people who want to reject christianity for personal reasons or or woundedness feel guilty for being drawn back into pieces of it you know um that oh i've i've you know i've rejected that i don't want any part of that but because it's their mother tongue they they do feel drawn back and and then but they don't want to they want to move on to something else <laughs> and i think that that that's kind of how we're spiritually formed. Um, we have, if I was born in Saudi Arabia, I bet that wouldn't be the case. You know, I, I would have a different mother tongue. But um, we do get formed in certain ways, and we can we don't have to be ashamed of them. Right. Yeah. You know, and it's well, I, and I think at the end of the day, you know, it's kind of like even when you get a divorce, you know, sometimes marriages end. Uh, it's better for the kids if mom and dad can find a way to be civil to one another. <laughs> I know agreed. That's, agreed. I, I know that's not always possible, and I don't want to in any way shame anybody who has a crappy relationship with their ex. I know sometimes that's just what's real. But in a perfect world, if a marriage ends, you know, it's, it, it works better for everybody if the two can be civil to one another. And I think that's the same thing. If, if you have to leave, if you have to leave Christianity, try to find a way to be civil. <laughs> when you're, but, you know, it's funny when I, when I was in the pagan world and realized, you know, again, my heart belongs to Jesus. I talked about this in the book and and, you know, kind of began to kind of disconnect from the neo-pagan community and, and start going to mass. And, and especially in Atlanta, the neo-pagan community is very small and everybody knows everybody and everybody's in everybody's business. And so, as you can imagine, there was some consternation, you know, because I was a leader in the community. I had published, I had several books, you know, I, I traveled to talk about paganism, blah, blah, blah. And then here I was going to mass. And, and there were people who really were angry, you know, and, and expressed a lot, a sense of betrayal. And, you know, and so all of that, you know, and I really had that. I, I learned who my friends were. And, you know, boy, that was interesting. But two of the people who were the most supportive of me were two who had grown up Catholic. And they had left Catholicism behind. They had no desire to be Catholic. And but they were at peace with Catholicism. And they and they and they were able to say, look, if you're drawn to be a Catholic, we want you to be a good and happy Catholic. You know, better to be a happy Catholic than to be a miserable pagan, (laughs) (laughs) which makes perfect sense. And, you know, but they had done their work. That's my point. They had done their work. And I think the people who really got upset at me were the ones who maybe had some unfinished business of their own with Christianity or with Catholicism. So it's it's yeah. There's a portion I'd like to read on page 145 that I'd love to have you expand on and and speak into. It says, going back to the earliest Christian centuries, consider these words from the ancient monk John Cashin. It is born in upon us that we should pass from fear of punishment to the full freedom of love and to that trust which characterizes friends and sons of God. Here we see that trust is related not only to generosity, prayer, and love, but also to freedom. The more we trust, the freer we are. Lack of trust is actually a form of interior bondage. The key to unlocking those chains is the gift of grace sought through prayer and perseverance. Finally, let's go back to dear Julian of Norwich, who acknowledged, quote, 
Often our trust is not complete, for we are not certain that Almighty God hears us. Often we are as barren and dry after our prayers as we were before, and thus when we feel so, it is our folly which is the cause of our weakness. For I have experienced this in myself, and our Lord brought all this suddenly to mind and gave me strength and vitality to combat this kind of weakness in praying and said, I am the foundation of your beseeching. Let me put this a little bit in the context for people who maybe have not read the book, um, that the, you know, I'm responding to another line in Julian of Norwich where she talks, and I don't have the book in front of me, but she basically says something uh, like, you know, I, I learned through my visions that God is the ground of our prayer and that God wants us, God offers us prayer. You know, God, God calls us to prayer and to trust and wants us to be generous in both. She says something to that extent. I, I don't have the words exactly right. But, and, um, and when I read that, it was kind of like when Luther read We Are Justified Through Faith. It was just this, oh, wow moment for me. And, um, you know, because I talk throughout the book, I talk about how I am, I am kind of a trust-averse person. Trust is not something that comes naturally to me. I'm the kind of person that when my mother said she loved me, I wanted to check it out. You know, just wanted to make sure. <laughs> so, and, and that's not true. My mother was a, you know, God rest her soul, was a beautiful woman and genuinely loving. But still, I'm just not a trusting person. I teach her. And, um, and so it's... Um, so that, you know, this whole question of part of being a spiritual person is learning to trust God. Whoa, that was major, you know, and and, I'm, and, and, and truth be told, I'm still working on it. But this idea that that one of the ways we learn how to respond to God is through prayer, through, you know, just being available to God, but then through trust, which is kind of how, how do we calibrate our mind and heart in relation to God. And then this idea that God asks us to be generous with both, be generous with our prayer, be generous with our trust. And what I realized in that moment was that I'm not a very trusting person, but I'm not a very generous person either. I'm Scottish and I, I embody the stereotype. You know, I just, I'm just, you know, I'm, I, I mean, for me to, to leave a 20% tip takes an act of will, you know, (laughs) (laughs) it's not in my nature. And so, um, so the, um, so I really had to do a lot of prayer and reflection and kind of meditation on this and this idea that, you know, because it bothered me that I wasn't more trusting. And so this idea of, well, if I work on being more generous, that will help me to be more trusting. And if I'm more generous in prayer, then I will be more generous in trust that, that it's, it seemed that, that each one of these supported the other two. But if you want to be more trusting and more prayerful, be more generous. If you want to be more generous, a a person, not only to God, but to other people, become more prayerful and work on your ability to trust. I mean, because let's face it, what is generosity? Generosity is giving away. You know, we think of it in terms of giving away money, you know, I mean, making, you know, I mean, like, like, you know, with the, with the pandemic, you know, all the, the, um, the celebrities and the wealthy people who are, you know, Bill Gates, you know, people like that who are giving millions and billions of dollars to fight the pandemic, they, they all make the headlines. You know, why do, why do they make the headlines? Because we think that's unusual. 
you know, I mean, they're just being good citizens at the end of the day. But but because we we had this idea that generosity and trust is not who we are. But, you know, the reality is, is if you go into into impoverished neighborhoods, people who have less tend to be more generous than people who have more. You know, it's it's like it's like there's been I, I can't cite the source. You know, I'm like the cloud of unknowing here. But I but I've read, you know, studies that have shown that the, the, the more expensive a car that a driver owns, the less considerate they are as drivers. You know, yeah, gen- that's right. Generally speaking, obviously, there's individuals and, in, uh, you know, that, that'll break the, the rule. But generally speaking, you know, the people who are driving expensive cars tend to be less considerate. You know, so generosity is not is not correlated with money, except maybe in an inverse way. Ironically, people who have less tend to be more able to give it away. Um, it's so, which is very interesting, you know, and that brings to mind Jesus' story with the rich young ruler, you know, hey, just give it all away. Yeah. You, know, you want to form it? Just give it all away. And the guy couldn't deal with it. He had to walk away. Um, you know, and that's one of those great stories where you wonder, whatever happened uh, yeah. Well, it's. It, I think that people who have less are more generous because they know what it is like so closely to be in need and they have empathy on a much deeper, greater level. I, I can only speak from our, my experience, but I grew up poor. I mean, I, I grew up like I grew up normal, <laughs> but my, my family was poor, but my mom was so generous to people. She would buy people groceries when we really didn't even have enough for ourselves. And she would go out of her way to help people. And, you know, people who had a lot more money than us weren't, weren't, I could tell were not as generous. And I always thought it's because she hurt for those people that she would do that. She had a natural empathy and, the, yeah. you know, and that just, that just drived her, her generosity. And so, you know, so I think that, you know, I'm not as naturally generous. So when, you know, I'm trying to cultivate a more generous spirit, uh, you know, because I believe that generosity is, is not only a good spiritual virtue, but that it's also a good human virtue, you know, that the part of the nobility of being human is our ability to help one another and to support, you know, and again, going, you know, bringing this full circle and going back to Rhiannon, you know, Rhiannon certainly began to teach me about the importance of generosity and the importance of just, you know, just giving myself, you know, because the reality is, you know, when you think of like a business model, everything's about making an investment, you know, and you want an ROI, you want a return on your investment. And, and, you know, and yet generosity, generosity to a sick child who won't even see her 30th birthday, who never left home, never got married, never held a job. Um, you know, and yet she wanted to. I mean, she one of the things, she, like what she could handle was shredding paperwork. So if I ever, you know, Fran used to say to me, don't shred your own papers. You know, give them to Rihanna because it gave her an opportunity to contribute, you know. And so, you know, so so she wanted to, but she just was not able. She lacked the physical ability, you know. And so by any calculus, all that I gave to her was a, quote, poor investment, and yet it, it was an investment in love. It was an investment in life. It was an investment in relationship. So, you know, the greatest investment is the one that has no, no bottom line return at all. It's just giving it away. Tell you a, wonder, tell you a wonderful story. There's a, and I don't know if you've ever had her on your podcast. If you haven't, you should probably get her. Uh, a woman, and her name is, is, 
escaping me right now, uh, Sarah Miles, Sarah Miles, she wrote a book called Take This Bread. And it's all about um, setting up food pantries in the San Francisco area. It's an amazing, amazing book. Really, it's, it's a must read. Well, I heard her speak uh, at, a, at an Episcopal church here in, in Atlanta a few years back. And she was telling the story. And she's at, she's at a, a big Episcopal church in San Francisco, right in, in the heart of San Francisco. And, um, you know, and like many Episcopal churches is a church with, you know, just the architecturally beautiful and it has all these amazing icons. And, and so when she set up the food pantry there, one of the things she said to the vestry was, we're not going to do this out of the basement like a lot of churches do. We are going to we are going to give the food away from the altar. And you know, they were like, oh, we were, you know, it might get dirty. It might get scratched. <laughs> She's like, we can get over that. You know? And so that's what they do is twice a week, they bring 400, 500, however many people in, and they bring them into the sanctuary and they hand out food from the altar. And, uh, and so, yeah, so I mean, she's an amazing person. Well, she was telling this story uh, when, when I heard her speak about one time she had some volunteers that were like, and they were like fifth or sixth graders. And she said it was wonderful because they were old enough that they could see things but they were young enough that they still had wide open hearts, you know, so this was really, really sweet age, you know, and, um, you know, what, what it was it fifth or sixth grade. That's what maybe 10, 11, you know, so it's like a first year at Hogwarts or something like that. But, yeah, but this man is standing in line. Oh, and another thing that they do with this food pantry is they don't check any IDs. They don't check immigration status or do you have a social, none of that. They just give it away. You, you, you show up, you need food here. Here's a bag of groceries. And um, so there's this man standing in line. He's got on a really nice suit and he's talking on his iPhone. And he's standing in line and he walks up and he, he grabs his groceries and he leaves. And the kids are scandalized. They're just absolutely scandalized. And so they go to Sarah and they're like, you know, somebody just gamed us. And she said, hey, 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 let's sit and talk. And she said, she said, there's two things I want you to learn from this. And the first thing is you can never judge by appearances. That man may have been, you know, uh, somebody had that just lost a job and, and needs this food because he has to choose between paying the rent and, and buying groceries for his family. We don't know the full story. He may have, you know, he may have just been dressed up to go to a, a job interview in the hopes that he can get work. We don't know the full story. So, so that's the first thing. So we do not judge people, especially just on their appearances. And then she said, and the second thing is he can't steal from us because we would give it to him anyways. <laughs> right. and, oh. and it's like, yes, you know, that's the gospel, you know. And, and I think that, you know, this that, you know, you know, and it's, it's funny because like being in the Roman Catholic world, you know, there are there are a lot of Catholics and God love them all. But there are a lot of Catholics who get really worked up over people taking communion who aren't supposed to take communion. They've either they, they're Protestant or they're in an, a non annulled, you know, they're in a new marriage and they haven't gotten the first marriage annulled or, you know, they've they've they've, they've committed some horrible sin or you know, you know, especially, you know, a lot of those rules I don't agree with anyways, but that's, right. that's <laughs> but, but those are the rules, you know, anybody who looks at the catechism understands what the church teaches. Um, and the, and these Catholics get worked up over this. And I remember talking to a priest once who taught sacramental theology for many years at the seminary, wonderful elderly man. And we were talking about 
Protestants receiving communion. And his attitude was, you know, if they just recited the creed, who am I to not give them communion? And I said, Father, but that will scandalize people. You know, of course, I agree with him. You know, I, I'm like, give, give communion to the whole world, you know, but, mm-hmm. but uh, it's a grace. People, yeah. yeah. You know, you, it's medicine, you know, you don't, <laughs> you, you can't take this until you're healthy, you know, <laughs> you know, you know it's the old joke to get a loan from a bank. You have to prove to the bank you don't need it. You know, it's that kind of thing, but you know, it's like, give it away, give it away. It's the love of God. It's the presence of Christ. You want to give it to everybody, you know, but his comment was, I said, but there are Catholics who will be scandalized by that. And his comment was, let them be scandalized. <laughs> and, uh, and, and so this, you know, so it's like being scandalized by this, this guy with an iPhone, you know, carrying, carrying groceries out. You know, we're, we're scandalized because we think whatever reason we think this person doesn't deserve grace, you know, and, and, and I have to be, be careful as well. Because even in just what I just said, because I'm, I'm somebody who wants to give grace to the homeless person and to the drug addict and to the person who's involved in, in the sex trade and to the person who is, you know, uh, whatever, whatever the situation should be. But then I tend to get judgmental towards the person who wants to exclude all those people. Right. <laughs> and they need it, too. And, uh, and they that too. I, a few minutes ago, I was expressing my judgment for the woman who criticized me because I talk about yoga. <laughs> I, I have to remember that not that I am called to love those people as radically as I believe God loves the most broken, drug addicted, etc. Whatever, however you you know, whatever your stereotype is of the outsider, you know. And that, that in Christ, there are no outsiders. They just, it just doesn't exist. That's all something we've created. So, you know, so it's, it's, so yeah, there you go. I don't know if that, if I even ever even got to the cash and quote for you. <laughs> <laughs> well, this has been beautiful. This is such a beautiful conversation. And, and uh, every time we get a chance to converse, it always feels like such a blessing and gift. I'm, I'm very honored that you come back and, and talk and I hope whatever book comes next that you'll come back on. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm I'm writing a book now, so maybe in another year or two we'll we'll, we'll be in touch. You know, that would be great. Yeah, that's that's wonderful. Now, do you have any final things you want to underscore or tell people where to find you? Uh, they on, online that the the primary things are encountering silence, which is the podcast that I co-host with Cassidy Hall and Kevin Johnson. <laughs> Uh, my website, which is simply carlmccoman.com. Um, I imagine you'll probably link it from your website. Uh, you know, I, I also show up on social media. Um, I have, you know, some of my content is also available on websites like Patheos and Medium, so you can check there. And, um, and then if anybody who wants to support my work, I'm, I'm on Patreon as well. That's great. Yeah, it turns out that the unteachable lessons... Um, that we can kind of converse about we learn them a little bit at a time i think and mm-hmm. yeah just talking about them helps i think to reinforce them for us and uh, that's the beautiful thing about community i've i've noticed in these times when we're not having church we're having like zoom meetings and watching videos and stuff um it it's a different it, it's getting me to reflect on what relationships and connections do 
for us, you know, in, in terms of in spiritual growth and, and learning these lessons. And it's really powerful. Other people, I mean, we, we don't learn in isolation, I don't think. No, no, we don't. And, you know, to, to go back to how the book began, you know, I was talking with an editor, just bouncing ideas around. And I said, you know, I'd love to write a book about how you can't learn from a book. You know, and it was almost <laughs> a joke. But she responded to it. She's like, that's a great idea. And the, this book is the kind of the end result of it. But the reality is, is that, yeah, you can't you can't learn the spiritual life from a book or from a seminar or from a an online course, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You learn it through life. But what is life? Life is relationships. You know, so, so at the end of the day, and this is why, you know, Jesus pulls out of the, you know, the Hebrew scriptures, love God, love your neighbor as you love yourself, you know, and then, and then Jesus adds the, for extra credit, love your enemies, you know, and those four, those four will keep us going for a lifetime. You can, you can, you can literally, you know, just put everything else in the tradition to the side. But if you take those four and say, that's going to be my spiritual practice, then I think you're probably where you need to be. So. Thank you so much, Carl. Thank you. It's always a delight. 